0: Um, we are continuing today in our uh, Biblical One-Hit-Wonders series. Um, the point uh, of the series is we are finding books that had a single chapter in them, a single entry. He only had just a little bit to say, and that's what we want to talk about. Uh, so far, we've, we've spent some time in, the, in Philemon. Uh, Dan uh, preached on Jude. This week, I am in Obadiah. Now, preaching Obadiah is, in the preaching circle is tantamount to losing a bet. You generally don't choose Obadiah. You just end up with it. So that's my gig for today. I'm actually very, very excited uh, about Obadiah today, and, um, and I think you'll, you'll find out why as we go on. One of the cool things about going through um, the, the biblical one-hit wonders is being reminded um, of the importance of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, we're reminded, the Apostle Paul is writing to a uh, protege of his, Timothy, and he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, 2 Timothy was written sometime in the middle of the A.D. 60s. So let's, let's call it A.D. 65 for good measure. This was prior to many books of the New Testament, including all of John's contributions, and the book of Matthew, and the book of Jude, which Dan preached on last week. When Paul is talking about Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. But sometimes we have a relevance issue with the Old Testament, right? Have you ever tried to read through the Old Testament? It's worth a candy bar if you can even get through Genesis. Uh, numbers, I, I, yeah, I don't think it can be done. I'm not sure it can be done in a straight shot. Um, the Old Testament tends to feel archaic. It tends to feel old. It's beyond us. We have trouble relating to the people that are in it. Their lives don't look like our lives. Even their interactions with God look different. They go to a temple and they're sacrificing stuff. There's blood everywhere. And like, we don't have any of that. And we're like, those guys just did things differently. And it's difficult for us To connect with those folks. Sometimes we even feel like we see a different God. We can look in the Old Testament and look in the New Testament and say, this is not the same deity. This is not the same entity. They act differently. They behave differently. And so we have a barrier when it comes to the Old Testament in in seeing how it applies to our lives. One thing we need to remember when we're talking about the Old Testament is that there are some, there are a lot of important reasons why we should spend time. Still reading and studying the Old Testament. I'll give you a few quick ones. The first one is remembering that it is God breathed. When Paul is talking about about looking at the Scripture and using it in his day to day life for correction, for reproof, for teaching, he's talking about the Old Testament. When Jesus was referring to Scriptures, see the Scriptures we think about, we think of Jesus in them. But he can't refer to them yet, they haven't been written down. He's talking about the Old Testament. So the two major teachers in our New Testament reading are referring to Scripture that, frankly, we don't spend a lot of time in because we feel like it doesn't apply to our lives. We feel like it's just a little bit irrelevant. So it is breathes. We can't just walk over it and stick with our New Testament. Secondly, it helps us understand the New Testament. The Old Testament is, uh, well, on the scale of my giant phone book, is about yay big, and the New Testament is about yay big. It's bigger. The Old Testament is bigger. And because the Old Testament spends time cataloging a lot of man's attempt to justify himself. Ways that he can get get to God on his own. And so a lot of times we have trouble understanding some of the New Testament, or we can get more out of reading the New Testament by knowing what's in the Old Testament. By seeing what has gone before us. What have people attempted to do in their lives? How have they tried to worship God? How have they attempted to save themselves? What has God done in response the New Testament is awesome, but there's a lot more depth to it, things that we can get out of it by understanding what's in the Old. We went through the, uh, the book of Hebrews a year and a half ago, and the book of Hebrews is, it spends a lot of time doing that, connecting the things that happened in the Old Testament to what we see in the New, so that we can see it deeper, and we can understand it more. One of the other reasons that the Old Testament is important is because it puts grace in perspective. See, we were born, I was born, you were born into a world in which Jesus had already come and died. It was done already. And so we run the risk of not seeing grace in its proper perspective because we were born into it. And so the Old Testament lets us take a peek into a world without Jesus and what that looks like, how people's behaviors and actions affected their lives, what it looked like for God in a world in which Jesus was not there yet. So it's important that we understand the Old Testament. The question is, how can we study it to ensure that we learn what we're supposed to learn. Because it's difficult. I've tried. I committed to reading the Old Testament when I was in high school. And I read it all the way through. And somehow I got on the impression that there's a story in there that God dropped a rock on a guy's head. And for the life of me, I cannot find it. I feel like it didn't happen at all. But I did read the Old Testament. So I obviously wasn't paying attention. So even my attempt to kind of like bully through the Scripture and pick out something of worth, I think, failed me because I, I don't think there's a story that has a guy with a rock on it yet. So the question is, is how do we look at it? How do we learn what's in the Old Testament and how it applies to us? We're going to look for four things. That's what we're going to do in the book of Obadiah today. We're going to take these four things and we're going to look at it through those lenses to see if we can understand what's going on in Obadiah. The four things that we want to look at. The first one is, what's going on? Hey, What's happening in this story? We need to understand the proper context where we're reading Scripture as a whole, the Old Testament specifically. Because what we tend to want to do in, Old, in the Old Testament is we find bits of Scripture that we really like and we apply them to our lives and we just live those. Okay? But Scripture oftentimes is specific to a certain people, a certain time, and a certain circumstance. When I, when I read that King Solomon is wise and wealthy, it's not really fair to take what God said to King Solomon and just apply it to my life. When he said, Solomon, I'm going to give you wisdom and wealth and just say, he was talking to me. Benfuss is to be Wealthy and wise, that's, that's what God meant, right? That's taking a piece of scripture that I really dig on and just saying, that's mine. That's going to belong to me without taking into the context that it belonged to somebody else in a different time and a different circumstance, all right? So we need to know what's going on and understand the context in which we're reading. Second question we should be asking ourselves is, what about God? What in this circumstance or in this set of scripture can I learn about God? Can I learn about his character? Can I learn how he interacts with his people? We need to be asking the question, what about God? Thirdly, what about man or what about me? Who are the people in this story and how are they acting? Are they acting well? Are they acting not well? What are the consequences of the things that they're doing? How is God reacting to what they're doing? What is the worldly reaction to what they're doing? What ultimately happens based upon what they did? How can I see myself in the story? That's the third thing we want to look for. And the fourth thing we want to see is what about Jesus? ultimately, all Scripture points us to Christ. Either it's because He's talking, or because He will talk. The Old Testament is pointing to a time in which Jesus will come, and we can understand Jesus in better context when we understand how the Old Testament is pointing to Him. So any Scripture we read, Old or New Testament, we should be asking the question, what does this tell me about Jesus? How does this fit into the broad story of Jesus Christ? Those are the four things we're looking for. So, Let's read Obadiah. We're going to split this into two segments. Um, Obadiah, you're going to get two sermons today. I'm sorry about that. We, kid, we don't advertise that up front because people just leave. Um, I'm going to try to, we'll try to sneak this one in uh, in about 15 or 20 minutes, and then we'll hit the, well, the second one is a shorter. I'm excited about the second one. It's not that the first one's not good, but the second one's awesome. Okay? so Let's get through the first one. We're going to read through Obadiah 1 through 14. Here we go. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave the gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast laws for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Wow! You guys get that? We're all good. We can just head on home. Oh boy. So, that happens a lot in the Old Testament. That type of thing right there. You go through it and you don't know what you just did with the last three minutes. But let's ask our questions. Let's see if we can get through it and see if we can understand where the scripture is going by answering the questions that we proposed. The first one is, what's going on? What's the context of what's being talked about in Obadiah? First of all, this is prophecy. It dates somewhere, between, uh, somewhere in the mid-500 BC area. Prophecy is a way in which a person uh, is communicating on behalf of God and he's telling things that are to come or he's explaining things and the reasons behind things that have come. Well, let's look real quick and understand the context um, of the world of which Obadiah is living in. So we see in the right-hand corner, uh, there's Edom in the bottom right, uh, just, just north of the Gulf of uh, Aqaba. Uh, Judah is to the east, and then north of that is Israel. Very quickly, uh, let's remind ourselves why we're talking about two different sections here. Um, the nation of Israel, uh, generally speaking, refers to a man named Jacob, who's, who was renamed Israel, and his progeny, his, his descendants. Okay? He had uh, 12 tribes that came from him, 12 sons. These were the folks that went into, um, uh, into Egypt and who were enslaved there. They came out of Egypt. They were given the land of Canaan, the promised land, and that's where they settled. Each of the tribes kind of found their own spot. A couple of them kind of hung out outside of it. Um, and so they were a full nation of Israel. So when we talk about the nation of Israel, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about a people, a people group, the people that are descended from Jacob or from Israel and also a geographical area. So these folks are together for quite a while. Um, we find that the, the kingdom that is the nation of Israel ultimately gets split under um, after King Solomon. King Solomon, uh, the wisdom and, and, and wealth guy, has wasted both of those by acquiring upwards of a thousand wives. That's what tends to help them to wisdom and wealth when you get a thousand ladies. Um, they brought their own gods, and uh, Solomon permitted them to be worshipped, and ultimately, uh, this angered God, God said, I will take your kingdom from, from you, and the broad nation of Israel was then split into the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem um, stayed in the kingdom of Judah. It is a smaller kingdom and it is to the south. So that's why they're split up here. Other thing to, to keep an eye on is look where Edom is positioned. And see up top where it says Damascus. So there's a trade route that goes down from Damascus all along this, uh, this line here through Gilead uh, where Benjamin is at down along the Dead Sea and ending up in Ezion-Geber. I had a hamster named Ezion-Geber once. That's not, it didn't happen, Joe. That's not, that didn't happen, it's not true. So, uh, that's an important trade route because it it links um, the prime city of Damascus all the way down to the Red Sea. It's good to be a port city in this day. This is where all the goods are coming in from, uh, from the south on the Red Sea. So that's a little bit of of where Obadiah is at. Okay, This this is the area in which he's preaching and talking about. What's happening, Edom is in trouble. Did we get the sense that Edom is in trouble? God is upset with the Edomites. The question is why? They're in trouble primarily for the reaction to the Babylonian pursuit to conquer Judah. Here's the other thing that happened. After these two nations were split, we have Judah, we have uh, the nation of Israel, Um, they continued to ignore God. They continued to do things that brought on, uh, that, that God said, look, I need you to turn back to me. He sent prophets. He sent people to say, you've got to turn around. You're worshiping pieces of wood. You look ridiculous. I need you to start doing the right thing. Turn back to me. You are my people. And they kept ignoring him. And God said the consequence to this is I will send somebody to kind of make sure you see the reality of the situation. And so what he did was, is he rose up the Babylonian Empire and a, and a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar was sent to Judah to basically take it over. He, he, he ransacked the city, he took down the walls, he captured the uh, inhabitants of Judah and, and took them prisoner. So Edom, as the neighbor to Judah, has a part in this. Here's where God's upset. Verse 11, it talks about non-involvement with these folks. They stood aloof. It says, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. When the Babylonians came in and attacked Judah, Edom stood by and did nothing. They did not defend their trading partner. They did not defend their brother city that was next to them. They stood aloof and thus became part of the action. God is also upset, we see in verse 12, for malicious gloating. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. The word brother is kind of interesting here because the Edomites are descendants of a man named Esau. Esau is the brother of Jacob, who was Israel, who was the man named Israel. So when he talks about brother, yeah, they're a brother city, they're a trading partner. They're also descendants... From two brothers. And he said, I'm upset with you because uh, you rejoiced. You saw them taken over and you had malicious gloating. You enjoyed their demise. Verse 13 talks about ruthless exploitation. These guys are a real piece of work, these Edomites. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth. They joined in. Not only did they stand by and they didn't do anything to defend their brother. Then they had a lot of fun at the expense of of their brother, and laughed at their misfortune, and then they joined in. They went and just picked up a little bit for themselves. This is why God is upset. This is why God is talking to the Edomites and sending Obadiah to talk about this prophecy. So, that's what's going on. That's our context of Obadiah hanging out. Next question is, what about God? Let's talk a little bit about God's character. One of the things that we can pick up from scripture is trying to identify how God acts, how he interacts with his people. What's the nature of his character? This is the being that we worship, the creator of the universe. I want to know as much about him as I can. I want to know his character. So there's a danger, though, in selecting certain aspects of God's character that we like and dismissing or ignoring things about God's character that we don't like. One clear aspect of God's character in Obadiah is his wrath. Verse 2 says, I will make you small among the nations. Verse 8 says, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? Verse 9, every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. You remember last week when Dan was talking about that that conversation he had with the lady on Facebook about the Chick-fil-A deal? When she was talking about God, she said, my God is a God of, remember, love. My God's a God of love. The thing that you're talking about doesn't match up with this aspect of God's character because God is a God of love. Now, 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Score a point for the Facebook lady. All right. But that's not the whole story, is it? That's not the whole story. See, God is love. That's true. But God is also wrath. He doesn't act outside of his character. He's telling these people that his wrath will come. He's not acting not God. He is God. So we have to reconcile the two. He is wrath. He hates sin. He will punish sin. The wicked. We do not get to pick and choose which aspects of God to focus on. We must understand the full character of God as revealed to us through his word. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is forgiving. Yes, he is patient and long-suffering and a protector and a healer and a ruler. But he will not be mocked. And it's a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Here's the thing. If God does not hate sin and if he is not a god of wrath then his grace is cheap then you are not that bad and the things that you do are not that offensive to god do not make the mistake of making a god in your own image by simply choosing certain things to believe or focus on when it comes to god's character romans 12:19 says beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the Lord. He's even taken vengeance away from you because you don't do it right. He does it much better. You do silly things like shaving a bunny into a man's back hair or putting lemon juice in his windshield wiper disposal. These are the things that you come up with. God says you don't do vengeance correctly. I am a God of wrath. I will handle the vengeance. We can't ignore that aspect of his character. God is a God of love, you bet. But That's not his entire character. Other aspects of God's character that I think we can pull out of this section of Obadiah. His patience. God does not have to give you a heads up. But he does. His prophets are always a function of him saying, Hey man, you're on the wrong path. You're doing the wrong thing. Here's where this is going to lead you. That patience is out of love. He does not owe that to you. But he gives it to you. And we should recognize his patience Simply by him giving the prophecy. By going to a people that do not serve him and saying, this is where this is going to end up for you. You've got to turn it. We should recognize his patience in his prophecy. Secondly, we should recognize sovereignty as an aspect of his character. See, he's bringing in Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, right? These are people that do not worship him. But can he raise them up and make them do what he wants? You bet he can. We need to recognize God's sovereignty. God does what he wants to do. He's a sovereign king. He, you don't have to be loving him and serving him for him to use you. And he will do that. In this case, he used these people, these Babylonians, as a judgment against his own people. So that they would turn around. God is sovereign. Next question. What about man? What about me? What do I look like in this piece of scripture? Well, So the primary issue with Edom is pride. Verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. So, biblically, the sin of pride usually has to do with false attribution or misdirected trust. We claim something is of our own doing, or we've put our trust or our faith in something that is the wrong thing. So, some things that we see some pride errors in the Edomites in. The first one is pride of location, uh, and, and talked about in verse three and four. Edom has very high mountains. Um, they have very, they don't have a lot of water, but they store it, and they have some caves within these deep mountains. They're easy to defend their own territory. Okay. They're in there. They're kind of holed up. It's tough to attack the Edomites. They're very proud of that. Secondly, the pride of wealth. Um, we talked about that, that trade route. That's a major trade route for them. They control the wealth that comes in and out of that port up through Damascus. They also have a lot of natural resources, primarily iron and copper. This is, they're wealthy. They're a wealthy organization. They have pride of alliances. They feel pretty strongly about the people they're in cahoots with. The scripture bears that out. Pride in wisdom. Uh, God says, I'm going to have to take down your wise men. They were pretty confident their wise men wouldn't be taken down because they were wise. They would know what was coming. And pride in armies, they felt like they could defend themselves. Not only by location, but they simply had the strength. They had the manpower, and they could not be taken down. So now, if you're trying to put together a man sized effort at protection, Edom has done it, haven't they? That's a pretty good list of stuff. Good location, plenty of money, good alliances. They're wise, they got a good army. That sounds like a good man sized plan. If you're going to defend yourself, but they forgot one thing they've snubbed the creator of the universe. Instead of seeking comfort in the words and the ways of God, they've sought comfort in their own words, in their own ways. Proverbs 1 7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Edom has missed the beginning. Yet they have a great location created by who? God. They have a wealth of natural resources put there by who? God. They have a pride of the alliances, the people they've hooked up with. Yeah, that went well. These are the people that attacked them. 20 years after the Babylonians ransacked Judah, they came in and they took out Edom, just like God said they would. Their neighbors from all sides were part of that. Those alliances stunk, but they were pretty happy with them at the time. Pride of wisdom. Yeah, you should have seen that failed alliance thing coming. It failed them. Their wisdom failed them. Pride of armies. They didn't seem to be able to stop the folks that came in to ransack them after they mocked Judah see we need to be mindful of this this pride thing especially in our own society we like this in America we like this self-made person the person that controls their own destiny and does their own thing but you're not a self-made person you're a God-made person we like to think about pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps but you didn't pull yourself up from your bootstraps you were brought up out of the ground by God We like to work hard to control what people think about us, to control our image. This is not my image. I was created in the image and likeness of God. See, the same society that allowed us great freedom to worship God allows you the same freedom to worship yourself or to worship other men. Any of the attributes that made up Edom's pride that are not rooted in God are fallible simply because they're not rooted in God. Regardless of how impressive they are. Fourth question. What about Jesus? What can I see about Jesus in this section of Scripture? So this one is not all that obvious, but it's important that we spend time trying to understand this one. So given the brief exposure here to the wrath of God against the Edomites, we can start to get a clear understanding of what is being deflected from us through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, we're the Edomites. We think highly of ourselves. We reject God's warnings. We cheapen his grace by coming to our own conclusions about how our sin is not so bad and how God can't really be that upset. The only thing that keeps our fate from being the same fate as the Edomites is the death of Jesus on the cross. He was the substitute. The Edomites didn't have Jesus to step in front of God's wrath. But we do. We were born in a time in which God had sent Jesus and it was already done. We are not subject to the same thing when we recognize and honor God and follow him. We see that Jesus took that substitute. The thing that Edom had to pay for, we're free and clear of. That was the first half of Obadiah. We're going to worship a little bit and we're going to come back. And I'm really excited about the second half, you guys. It's going to be awesome. I'll see you in a bit. Forgotten me, haven't you? Big Bible, Mike in the face. That guy? That's me. I'm back. Uh, okay, so uh, we, we got through our first half of Obadiah. Let's, uh, let's read the rest of it and see if we can pull out the same things. I mean, let's go through the same questions. We'll see if we can pull out um, what, what exists in the, uh, the latter half of Obadiah uh, for us from God today. Starting in verse 15. It says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. Okay, that sounds a lot like the first half, right? Someone's still in trouble. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jake, Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Shepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is not one of those books where you're going to name your kid and you close your eyes and do one of these deals. You're going to get a Negev on your hands and you are regret it. Okay, right. so Obadiah 15 through 21. Let's hit our questions. What's going on? The prophecy continues. He was talking to, to um, Edom, but it's a broad prophecy and he's going to expand it. So it takes an interesting turn in verse 15. It says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now, the day of the Lord indicates a special time when God is manifesting himself uh, in a special way. This is a day of judgment for the enemies of God and a day of vindication for his followers. Now, you, you see this used in a couple different ways. Some of it is an, is an immediate thing or more, um, it could happen soon. In this instance, he's, he's warning the Edomites they will be uh, done within the next 20 years. Um, you also see the day of uh, the day of the Lord spoken of on like the final day of judgment. Um, something we'd be more used to seeing in the book of Revelation. So you kind of use it in two different contexts, but it's the same basic premise, right? God is manifesting himself in a special way. There's going to be judgment for the enemies of God and a day of vindication for his followers. And he says the day is near for all the nations. So this is spread, right? He was, Originally, he was just talking to Edom. And now it's spread out and he says the day is near for all the nation. The retribution is not only for Edom, but it's for all nations that act in the same way as Edom has. In contrast to this bleak future of Edom and the nations that surround it and act in the same way, we also see a bright future in God's promise to the nation of Israel as to what their future will be like. So that's our context, right? That's what's going on in this back half of Obadiah. Uh, Don't feel bad. If it takes you like six or seven readings of those six pieces of scripture to get there, that's totally cool. I've been reading this thing all week because I knew I had to stand in front of you and come up with something to talk about. Uh, So, if you don't get it on the first wing, that's totally cool. Just spend some time reading over it, take it sentence by sentence, see if we can figure out what's going on. Our second question is, what about God? What can we learn about God in this particular section of Scripture? Here's what I got from it. That He is faithful. See, on many occasions in the history of His people, God has reminded them of His commitment to them. Now, this isn't because His commitment has waned, it's because their commitment to Him has fallen off. And when he wants to remind them and say, you will be my people and I will be your God. It says this in Genesis seventeen seven, Exodus 6, 7, Leviticus twenty six twelve, 12. In Deuteronomy 31, 8, it says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Now, that does bring up an interesting question, though, because we feel like he's kind of done that uh, to Judah. He's brought up somebody to come attack them and teach them a lesson, a punishment, a retribution uh, for seeking other gods. But when God says that I will not leave you or forsake you, it doesn't include him, exclude him from punishment to make sure that you don't leave for good, that you don't fall off the end. So they often turned from God, this nation of Israel, openly worshipping idols. They desecrated the temple, the very place that God had chosen to live among his people. They ignored his instruction. And this behavior is what caused the Assyrians, God used the Assyrians to capture the nation of Israel in 700, early 700 BC, And Judah in 586, the event that Edom is in trouble for standing idly by for. But God has not forgotten his people. He's faithful. He promises a day in which the nation of Israel will be restored. And here's some of the ways that he talks about that. Uh, First of all, as as a refuge, he he says Mount Zion, um, there should be those who escape and it shall be holy. Now, Mount Zion in this context is used to indicate salvation. Uh, it's It's a place where God gathers his people to him Uh, And he shall reign. We see it used in this way in Hebrews 12 and Galatians 4. It becomes synonymous with the new Jerusalem, the new way. After God has kind of taken care of the rest. And what remains is Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, the place where God will reign. And it is to the place that people shall be saved and set apart from those who will be subject to God's judgment. He also promises unity. This is interesting. He says, Joseph will be aflame and Jacob will be aflame. We talked about those tribes. We talked about 12 different tribes of Israel. So uh, Joseph was one of them. Um, Israel, Jacob was one of them. So when they did that separation, split into two kingdoms, Joseph and Jacob were separated. They were no longer together. By their own choice, they had taken action. Um, and, and God had said, I will take this kingdom away from you. I will split it. And those two had been separated. But when he talks about Mount Zion, when he talks about things coming together, okay, those two will be reunited. Those things that man had torn apart by his own action, God is bringing back together. My people will not be separated For all time by their actions. I will bring them back together. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about Jacob and Joseph coming together and ultimately Edom being destroyed. We can see this as a place of unity. He is faithful. What you've torn apart, God has put back together. He also promises total victory. Verse 18, that Israel's enemies are easily defeated and none shall remain. We can see in his actions and in his promises in this prophecy that God is faithful. The things that he said he will do, he will do regardless of how many steps we take in front of him and try to destroy the plans that God has created. We learned about him being sovereign in the first section of Obadiah and we are reinforced that he will do and he is faithful and he will be honest when he tells us he's going to do something. We should also take from this that his word is true. This requires reading a little bit outside of Obadiah, but I thought it was, it was interesting to be able to see these promises that God has made kind of come to fruition. In verse 19 and 20, uh, that's when he starts talking about Negev and uh, Samaria, and like all those other places that I have trouble pronouncing, Zarephath. Okay? But he, he, what he's talking about is he's saying, these places will be restored to me. These are places that, that my, my people were in and have slowly allowed themselves to be taken over and destroyed. And, and my word and my people are no longer in these areas. And when he talks about these different places, and uh, I should have brought the map back up because you can look and see where they're at, but you basically see where Judah was. And, and, and all these places he's mentioning are different places on the map where he's going like this. Okay? He started in Judah and he said, you're going to go to Samaria. You're going north. Go where Benjamin was at. You're going to make yourself. The people who were taken when the Babylonians came over, they're going to come over and they're going to be influencing areas like Damascus and Zarephath. And you're going to over in Timon and Petra. God's going to start in the center and it's going, to, it's going to spread out. And my word will go out and my people will go out. His word is true. And we see this being, like, being paid off. Verse 19, he talks about Philistia. And if we read in Acts 8 and 9, it talks about Philip preaching from Azotus to Caesarea and, and Peter preaching in Lydda and Joppa. That's that area. The place that God said his word will go to, it happens. Acts tells us about it. Verse 19, it's talking about Samaria. If we follow again in Acts 8, 5 through 17, it talks about Philip preaching the gospel to the Samarians. It's happening, just like God said it would. Verse 20, they're going to go to Zarephath of Phoenicia. Acts eleven nineteen. 19 talks about Jerusalem Christians traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. This bubble where God's people were segmented, separated from God, just like God said it would. His word and his people and his grace is spreading back throughout that region. They will not be contained. His word is true. He will do what he says he will do. What about man? What about me? This section of scripture is less about personal deeds, actions, and attributes, and more about simply being able to identify the losing side. Like the nation of Edom and every person who has been exposed to this particular prophecy, we have a choice to either join God on the side of holiness and salvation or reject Him and remain on the side of judgment and ultimately God's wrath. This is important, guys. We're we're not exempted. He he gave us. This is what's going to happen. This is what I'm offering you. We're on the choice. Whether we wanted the choice or not, that's where we're at. We have the information that God has given us. The things that he said will happen, will come to fruition. From a personal perspective in this section of scripture, it's simply, what am I going to do? Which side do I want to be on? Here's the most important part of this section. What about Jesus? When I was looking over Obadiah, I, um, I was really, to be honest, I, I was kind of dreading it. Because I thought, uh, like, it, it's tough. From an Old Testament perspective, we have to set a lot of background. I know this has been a lot of junk, right? A lot of maps and telling you about stuff that went on prior to this to try to get us a little perspective of what it is. But I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to peel out something that we could do or something that we could recognize Christ in. And I was so wrong about that. I was so wrong about that. This whole story in Obadiah, it's a great picture of the story of Christ. See, we first have to recognize, and we hit this a little bit earlier, that we are Edom. We are in their position because ultimately we are just as worthy of God's wrath as they are. Paul reminds us in Romans that the wages of sin is death and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, That's us. We're in the all category. That's us. And in this state we have the option to either share in the fate of Edom or share in God's promise to those who will love and follow God. To accept His promise kept by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. To be holy. To conquer our enemies, to be part of the movement of the kingdom of God. And all of this is not because we were able to stop sinning. Not because we have something to offer God. Not because we are impressive or because God needs us. But simply because we accepted his offer for us. I will trade you, my son, for your sin. That's a heck of a deal. And we would be fools not to take it. Listen how Obadiah ends. Very last words of his prophecy. He says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This echoes something that that King David had written in Psalm 22. He said, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. Daniel, another prophet says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Zechariah 14 says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Luke one thirty three is talking about Jesus, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And in Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the good news. That is the gospel. It's exactly what we were to understand from Jesus' coming. And we can see it in Obadiah. The good news is is that God is a God of justice and he's a God of wrath and he hates sin and he sent Jesus to deflect all of that and say, I was willing to give this up for you. That's Obadiah, that's Jesus, and that's awesome. So what what, what can we do with this? This is my other fear, right? We're an Old Testament book. Um, I feel like the action items would be go to the temple and we we're going to be hosts and we're not going to have anything to do. Um, but again, totally surprised. I actually had to cut off the number of things that I thought we could do with this text as far as what I was seeing God do and what I was seeing God's people do and how we can continue to worship God and serve him by fulfilling his promises. So here's the things I want you to walk away from. This is a very broad scope, but I think we can see all of this within the text of Obadiah. Uh, number one, in Joshua 24:25, it says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The book of Obadiah puts us to a question. Who will you serve? There are only two options, really. God or not God. See, we just went through the text. Edom is the not God route. And I'll be real honest with you. That sounds like a junk choice to me. I have the option of being on God's side or creating my own problems and suffering in them at the hands of a holy God. That seems like a junk choice. But if we're being honest, some of you are in that choice right now. And there there are a million reasons that you might have for staying in that choice but none of them are compelling. None of them lead to his grace. And none of them lead to his kingdom. So the first thing we should step away from here is, who will we serve today? Second, holy living. God calls us to be set apart. Verse 17 reminds us that God's kingdom and his people should be holy. See, our behavior reflects a love for God. 1 John 5.3 tells us that to love God is to obey his commandments. This is to be done for the glory of God and the joy of others. And following God's direction is simply the way to live. Our first step is praying for a heart that desires God's will above our own. And the next step is studying the word of God so that we can know the difference. So we can live holy, like he's asked us to. Number three, be part of spreading God's kingdom. I got lost in all the names of the, the sections of the countries and stuff, right? But like... What really grabbed me, and I get so jazzed about this, is that is that spot, that Judah, and it just, God's word just penetrating out. From the nations of which God was removed, they are being spread. God's word is being spread. God's people are retaking. And God is, and the gospel is being preached. See, part of the glory of God's kingdom is to watch it spread. In Obadiah's prophecy, God's people are segmented. They're captured and they're ineffective. But God equips his people with the ability to retake the lands for his kingdom. And we have that same opportunity today. You don't have to leave the country and go to Negev or wherever it is you want to go. You can do it here. We can be the center. We can be the Judah through which the walls of pathway reverberate outside of the community of Johnston, in the communities that you live in, in the schools that you send your kids to, in the places that you work. We can be part of God's work doing that and see it spread the same way that we're able to see God's promises spread in this area of the country. Four, passionately pursue God in his word. One of the warnings we can walk away with from reading this text today is recognizing our potential for creating our own God out of the characteristics that we like. God is immutable. He does not change. So when we see wrath and we see love from God, we need to reconcile the two, not throw one out. There are few pursuits that have a greater benefit as pursuing to know the character of God. Actively trying to understand his full character, his full counsel that is available to us within his word. Number five, this is the best one, is to celebrate. Praise God for his saving grace. Praise God for his promises, his fulfilled promises. Praise God for his kingdom. And praise God for the justice that is his wrath and his perfect means to divert it from those who believe. Let's pray.